You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another glorious example of Global Trade This Week. I am Pete Mento, and with me is my good friend and co-host, Doug Draper. Doug, how's it going, buddy? Uh, four accused of using drones to deliver drugs illegally into California prisons. That's what you're going to start off with. <laughs> no, I just said, no, I'm not going to start off with that. But I saw it and I'm like, I got to get back into my drone thing. And then that's all I'm going to say about it. That's it. Do we have to talk about how often drones were used to keep our good friends in Ukraine in the fight? Do we want to? No, you know, no, wanna... we don't. No, we don't. Okay, fine. No. That's cool, but, man. Yeah. But but we could talk. So anyway, I had to throw that in there. But um, my weekend was killer because I went and saw my kids and my daughter was uh, in a rowing competition and her boat uh, won and they raced against uh, Oklahoma, Iowa and Minnesota. So um, a happy daughter equals a happy wife equals a happy life, if you will, Pete. So. Uh, all my kids are doing, all of them, my two kids are doing phenomenal. It was a great weekend. My daughter had a very successful uh, event and uh, all is well. So I had to share that with uh, with our audience. So you went down to Oklahoma for, for the race? No, it was in uh, Kansas City. Oh, so we okay. cruised along. The other thing, Pete, is Kansas, you do not mess with Kansas weather, right? So we left Denver on Friday. It was snowing. Uh, and then it got windy as hell. And then the sun came out and then we were in a rainstorm and a lightning storm. And then we ended in a hailstorm, all within like a six hour drive going across Colorado and, and Kansas. Wow. It's, uh, it's rough. Yeah. So, do not mess around in, do not mess around in Western Kansas. It'll light you up, my friend. So it's, it's still the middle of April here. And I'm, I'm just assuming that people are still skiing and snowboarding in Colorado. Mm, a little, little bit. bit. Most of the resorts have either closed or they're closing this weekend. Well, uh, it was in the 80s here late last week, like upper 80s. It was it was super warm in New Hampshire, which was nice. And I was speaking to a buddy of mine who's an avid skier here out east, and he was saying that they're still skiing in Killington in Vermont. Oh, cool. Um, he didn't buy a season pass this year because he did the math, and he's British. It was cheaper for him to fly back to Europe. He has the benefit of working remotely. It was cheaper for him to fly back to Europe to rent a ski house in France and then to fly his kids every weekend on cheap flights, his daughters, for a number of different no weekends and get them passes than it was for him to rent season passes for just himself and his girlfriend and get a house in Vermont. Whoa. That's how cheap it was to to because between the euro being as inexpensive as it was and how cheap yeah. it was in France to, to, to ski. He said it was just out of control this year. Uh, it's just gotten out wow. of control to ski here. So I, I can't, yeah. I, I don't know, man. Uh, you, you guys must be very fortunate in Colorado with the, whatever deal it is you get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not when you drop uh, four passes for a family of, or when you do a family of four, it can still get pretty expensive. But anyway, that uh how was your weekend my friend well, that was great man you know um both the daughters were here that was nice um saw a movie called renfield if you are squeamish it's a comedy 
but you wouldn't know it given how much blood was spilled. Um, mm. Yeah, got to spend some quality time with Amy, which was fabulous. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, youngest son had a rugby tournament. We got to watch some of it remotely. They did very, very well. They didn't have anybody score on it. It was a sevens tournament, which is kind of like rugby light. They played uh, four games, let anybody scoring on them, and then had a, a pretty difficult decision, very unlucky decision against St. Bonaventure where they lost in the final. So they came in second for the tournament, but he scored in one of his games, and that was great. And um, I think they have a couple tournaments left in sevens before they get back to real rugby in the fall. So um, rugby's a tough sport. you got to play two seasons when you're on scholarship. But mm. you love playing rugby, so just extra rugby, yeah. buddy. Nice. Yeah. But with that, Doug, nobody cares. Um, they they watch the show. They watch the show for the trade stuff. And you think they watch it for halftime. I still don't think they do. But um, uh-huh. uh, you elected to receive. So you're going to let us know what the first topic is this week. All right. Yeah. So I came across a term that I had not heard before that the World Trade Organization, the WTO, coined in uh, an article that they had written called long-term decoupling. And essentially it's talking about is the global economy uh, shifting into two separate blocks of economic power. It would be the China and Russian side and the U.S. and the EU side. And you got to kind of pick your side, pick pick your team and and move forward. And the, the easiest um, and they were talking about how, what's the implications and the geopolitical nature of things. Um, and I started thinking that we've not talked about it, Pete, but there's been a whole lot of activity around um, tankers and the logistics of moving oil around uh, primarily out of, of Russia and how the tanking industry has definitely changed. And so, um, you know, the whole sanctions that have come up, uh, at the start of the Ukrainian war about nobody's buying anything from Russia, specifically with oil and all the workarounds, right, that have been developed um, with moving product and moving um, a petrol out of uh, of, uh, of Russia. And they've determined, uh, they have coined that term friend shoring, right? Um, you got near shoring and all that kind of stuff. This is friend shoring. Well, that would basically mean that the uh, the Russians are selling uh, their crude oil and their and their and their products mm-hmm. to their uh, coupling side, you know, uh, countries that are uh, like minded uh, politically with with China and Russia. And the funny thing is is, and I was just learning about this a little bit, Pete, that Russia developed a shadow fleet where they bought all these old crappy tankers, and they said we're not going to throw our products on other uh, other boats. We're going to do it ourselves. And then there's kind of this gray market where investors are investing in these these fleets um, that you kind of don't know who really owns them. And the one thing, Pete, that I that that I that I read about was that these vessels would leave the port uh, of uh, you know Russian port, and they would wouldn't really have a destination. They would just float out into the Atlantic. Then they'd go dark. They kind of turn off their signals, and then come back to the port, and they would be uh, much lighter. And so they're transloading oil out into uh, other vessels out in, in, in the ocean. And so um, anyway, I bring all that up mm-hmm. because I, I think the tanker model, whenever the WTO refers to long-term decoupling and friend shoring is to say, well, who wants oil? People need oil. Who's going to buy it? 
right? Well, our friends will buy it, and that would be the team Europe and or, or team Russia and China, and that is a tangible example of the decoupling. So the question I have to you and our audience, if they care to make comments, is is that some foreshadowing, right? Is that bipolar trade starting to manifest? Is the whole tanker trade um, a foreshadowing of what could come with long-term decoupling in global trade? So I don't know. I thought that was an interesting topic, and I want to get your read on it. I think first and foremost, it's always important to remember, Doug, that China will do what's best for China. China is uh, is the China is the five year old throwing a tantrum of of mega powers. There is rarely anything that is done altruistic. You know, there's that there's that great Zen Buddhist Zen story of the um, there's a prince hanging out a window. And you see it falling. Someone throws it out the window and you rush to save it. Is that truly a, a moment of charity? Have you done it out of the kindness of your heart? And then the, the alkalite says, well, of course I've done it. I don't want that baby to fall. Did you do it because you're trying to save the prince, though? Did you do it because you're trying to gain favor from the king? Was it really something you've done out of kindness and charity? You can only do that mm-hmm. if, if you do it thoughtlessly. If you do it from a place of, of, of non-contemplation. So you should spend your entire life trying to be thoughtless in that moment, you know, and that's just Yoda eyes concept. China never thinks that way. China, 100% of the time, all the time is thinking, how do I make this moment work for me? You know, I worked for this guy, Tim Zubrat, when I was at Crane and he had this great, um, he had this great saying, he's like, my favorite radio station is W I um, F M what's in it for me. You know, that's my favorite radio station. And um, China's very much always listening to that station. And they're, they're doing right now what appears to be this, this coupling, you know, this, this creation of these coalized blocks with them in Russia. Well, it's because there's something in it for them. And they could mm-hmm. care less what's in it for Russia. They could care less what's in it for the greater global community. There is no charity here. There is what serves China, the Chinese Communist Party, and the people of China. And some could even argue it's really what serves the Chinese party, which ultimately is what serves the, the great longevity of the Chinese regime. So um, we have to start from that particular instance. And what really serves China is their, their protracted relationship with American consumption and Western consumption. There's really nothing to be gained by propping up Russia. There's really nothing to be gained by propping up Iran other than energy. And that's energy that can be found from other sources, most particularly from an America that exports energy to China. And that could come in many different sources. If we would just decide to send them coal again, as a crazy example, or if we started to frack again and send them natural gas, oh, gee, did I say that again? And we never talk about politics here, but it's politics that's stopping both of those things from happening. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, I honestly believe, Doug, that this is this has more to do with angling them for a what if situation than it does about long term political goals, and it has nothing to do with trying to set up a multipolar environment for the better good of all mankind. It has to do with what China wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see how that that plays out. It could just be uh, good fodder and and, and good uh, reading. So you and I talk about it on our podcast. Yeah, so I, again, how that plays. I'm sure China cares about China, but they sure don't care about Pete and Doug. Actually, no, we take Doug and Pete, right? Because it goes in alphabetical order. There you go. There you go. All right, man. 
back to you. What's your first topic for the day? Uh, first topic for the day was since uh, you know the pandemic started all the way through the better part of, I suppose, maybe the first few months of this year, lots and lots and lots of continued mergers, acquisitions, um, uh, I guess what you call sort of buying distressed assets. And we talked a lot about this at the end of last year, how it was going to continue with the continued elevation of interest rates and with banks being a little more stingy about who they're loaning to. It's harder and harder for people to go out and obtain the money that they need, borrow it if they need to, in order to do these big blockbuster acquisitions. Doesn't mean they're going to stop altogether, but are we going to see them slow down? And one of the areas I think people are forgetting about is private equity. There's a lot of private equity out there, lots of individuals and organizations that have cash that aren't banks that are probably going to be looking to put that money to good work. So I think that that's still a place where it's going to come from. But should we expect to see maybe these mega acquisitions slow down? When you have some very large freight forwarders that are still sitting on piles of cash and are going to be looking to do something with it, uh, you're still going to see you're still going to see some mergers and acquisitions. But are we going to see the feeding frenzy that we saw over these last couple of years? I don't I don't know. But I think that the um, the slowdown of liquidity and the slowdown of, of lending probably will have an impact on sort of those mid-tier, mid-market ones that we had seen for probably the last five years. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. A lot of that tech, uh, or excuse me, a lot of those acquisitions was kind of emerging tech uh, around our industry. So log tech, as we've referred to it, uh, you and I in the past. So cheap money. Let's throw some some cash at, uh, at, at this new, what's the new shiny thing out there? And I think that's what we saw a lot of it during you know, the golden, the roaring 20s. And then when push comes to shove, you saw a lot of companies just get narrowly focused on their core competency. Um, you know, XBO started shedding all their businesses and spinning them off, which is completely the opposite of what they did for, for many, many, many years. But let's get laser focused when, uh, when push comes to shove and things are rough. But I love the point that you mentioned that there's still a lot of big, big companies out there with a lot of cash that do not need to go to a bank. No. To accomplish their objectives and their goals and so i could see a couple of wow i didn't see that coming type of uh acquisitions in the near term but the little guys the log tech the uh you know the stuff that was kind of cool and fun uh, that's dried up in my opinion for the foreseeable future yeah all right well that yeah. gets us to halftime doug uh brought to you by our good friends yes. at cap logistics to learn more about cap logistics we urge all of you to check out their website at caplogistics.com we thank them, as we do every week, for helping us to bring this content to you, for putting their faith in us to bring you now what we uh, know is happening, but what we believe is going to happen in the markets and what's going on with international logistics, global trade and economics. We thank them, as we always do. So, uh, Doug, who's going first this week? All right. I'll jump in here. So I saw this thing this morning. Uh, amazing, right? This is the beauty of halftime. It has nothing to do with with uh, with global trade, but there is this Spanish extreme athlete uh, that emerged from a cave in Granada, Spain, after she had spent 500 days with no human interaction. Um, she went in on November 21st of 20 of 21, so uh, November 21st of 21, and she just came out Friday. She was in a cave, 
230 feet down. There apparently was light because some of what she did was was read. She did her did did her time. She spent her time down there exercising, drawing, knitting. She read 60 books, and she said after two months she lost the concept of of time. And when they pulled her out and said it was time to hop out, she thought she'd been down there for about 170 days when in actuality it was, it was 500. So no sound, no people. Uh, she lost her balance at times. She had auditory hallucinations. And she was being monitored this whole time because there's lots of studies going on. But holy crap, are you kidding me? Spending 500 days in a hole, in a cave with zero contact? I can't even... I can't even fathom that. And the Guinness Book of World Record, Records has no record to know if there. this is the longest voluntary uh, cave hibernation of a human. So they're still trying to figure out how do they uh, how do they add this to their books or not. But anyway, I'm like, holy crap, Pete, when I read that, it had to be brought on halftime with our show. So my question, Pete, is how long could you hand, uh, hang out in a cave 230 feet uh, below the surface of the earth? It sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds it sounds fantastic, Doug. Um, mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have to deal with anybody. Like that's what you're telling me. Uh, so what? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how many days? Yes. Like, <laughs> if I could take Amy and not have to deal with anybody. And all of my needs are taken care of. Like you're telling me that I've, I can read books and they're going to bring me food and I don't have to work. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to deal with anyone. I can just be entertained and we can just like hang out. Oh, where do I sign up? Mm. <laughs> so that's well, you don't like, if you want a world record, Pete, you just have to hang out there for 501 days. So that's I'll hang out for 5,000. I don't think you seem to understand where I'm going with this. No, I don't. I've I've dealt I've I've been in sales for thirty years, Doug. If I like, I'm okay at the thought of just being left alone for the rest. Like I, you know, I will I will reread I will reread the Brothers Karamazov five times in a row just to see the different nuances in it. I will I will get back to painting. I will write poetry. I will listen to music. I would have the oh oh. Are you kidding me? I will get fatter. I will put all my weight back on. I won't exercise. I won't have to go weigh in every week. This would be the greatest thing, Doug. Is there booze? Mm -hmm. Is there booze? Oh, no. not auditory, no auditory hallucinations. I'll be taking fistfuls of mushrooms every day. <laughs> this would be the this would be the best thing that's ever happened to me. I don't think this is defined as a vacation. Uh, yeah, so well, well, here's, I'm not going alone. Like that. I said, I'm bringing Amy. Like I've got to have. That's not the point. No. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, did, did, why did she do it? Did she do, was, was there any money involved? Did she make a bet with some shifty, weird, shadowy millionaire? Like why? You know, that's a great question. And in, in the articles I did a little research on that question was never posed. And if it was, I missed it. It was only talking about, um, what she did down there and, and her emergence from the cave. <laughs> Well, so anyway. she didn't make a lot of money off of it. Not only was she lonely for 500 days, she's an idiot. So I'm just going to go on, <laughs> I'm gonna go on record. 
Right. So speaking of that, uh, now that it's my turn, um, this this will this yeah. will give you some insight. Uh, today is a fabulous day to be in Boston um, under certain conditions. So today is evacuation day, which is a state holiday in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And um, it's great for a couple of reasons. It's particularly great if you're a sports fan, Doug. So um, today is, is Marathon Monday, but the history, yeah. the history of the day goes back to the Battle of Breed's Hill, which we also call the Battle of Bunker Hill, which effectively was the first victory, major victory, in the American Revolutionary War. And it's when the city of Boston won its first major conflict in the Battle of American Independence, and we were able to physically drive the British out of the city of Boston. And after that point, the British never occupied the city of Boston again. It was a pretty big deal. And because of that, the city of Boston ever since then has made it a, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has made it a state holiday. There's no school. There's no, no public sitting mm. offices are open. There's no mail delivery. It's, you know, it's, it's a pretty fun day. Um, and it's also the day of the Boston marathon because of that. Um, a lot of cool things happen in the city, mostly mostly revolving around day drinking, to be honest. So people come out, they watch the marathon happen, they encourage the runners. It's kind of fun, you know, to go out there and see all that positivity. The Red Sox play a home game at 11 o'clock in the morning. So you go out, you watch the Red Sox play, you drink beforehand, starting pretty early. And then when the Red Sox game is over with, you try to watch the end of the Red Sox, uh, part of the end of the marathon. And then afterwards, depending on how our two winter teams, the Celtics and the Bruins are doing, you may only have one playoff game. You could have two. So there have been instances when both the Celtics and the Bruins are playing playoff games in the same day. So it's possible to see a Red Sox game, a Celtics game, and a Bruins game all in the same day and see mm. the Boston Marathon, which is pretty cool. Uh, the first time I ever brought Amy to Boston ever, ever was the day of the Boston bombings. And we had left the um, Fenway Park, and I was going to bring her, my friend Paul Flynn that I played rugby with, and um, someone who was really as close to me as a brother, my friend Sean Toll. And we were walking from the Fenway area to the, uh, we were walking to the Prudential area to go to get as close to the, uh, the um, finish line as we possibly could when a number of Boston police officers told us to turn around and we could see the black clouds of smoke coming and all the uh, helicopters. We walked to the uh, Harvard club where I'm a, where I'm a member and um, they let us in after I kind of lost my shit on the security guards. They weren't letting anybody in. And I said, that's you reading a security protocol that I wrote. So my name's right there. Why don't you let me in? And they uh, they did. They let me in, and um, we were the only people there that weren't that didn't work there. And we watched events unfold for a while. And then when it was clear the city had the town on lockdown, we walked through. I mean, an absolutely quiet, dead city. We watched SWAT members and state state troopers fast roping onto the buildings and roofs with snipers. We walked through the Boston Common back to at the time what was where we were staying at a hotel. And I just told Amy to keep looking forward, stand behind me. You know, it was, it was, it was creepy. But the next morning, um, I remember waking up and going to 7-Eleven to grab something outside my hotel room. They told us, don't go on the street, if, you know, but that, that one convenience store was open. And there was a guy in front of me that had, uh, <laughs> he had on a, a Boston Marathon 
metal. He had run the race the day before and he couldn't fly home because they had closed the airports. They were trying to find the bomber. And mm -hmm. the guy behind the counter said, so um, are you going to run again next year? And he said, of course I am. And the guy said, well, aren't you afraid? And he goes, no. Why would I be? And he goes, well, they bombed it this year. And he goes, yeah, well, fuck them. And, and I just remember saying that is like the most Boston thing I've ever heard anybody say. <laughs> and um, it was, it was a, it was a strange time, but it, it made me very proud to be from new England um, just to see how everybody rallied around that moment, you know, mm -hmm. and I've been back to, to Patriots day since then. And I've, I've gone to one baseball game. I've gone once I've got one time since then, but I didn't get to spend the rest of the day. I actually had an interview with, with crane. So I ended up having to fly to Chicago. Um, I, I didn't get to hang around. But it's a wonderful, wonderful day to be in the city. But now that I'm in my 50s, you couldn't pay me to spend a day hanging around Boston, drinking from 9 o'clock in the morning until the end of the day. Like, it, it exhausts me, Doug. It actually makes me tired to think about being downtown, drinking with a bunch of 20-year-olds. I'm going to be I'm going to be euphoric tonight, sitting on the couch, you know, watching the news at 5 o'clock with Amy having dinner, um, rather than fighting crowds of drunks at, um, you know, at the... At the um, wherever I would have been. Um, yeah. I, I just, I've, I'm that old now. I can't even imagine doing it. But if you're young and uh, you want to be somewhere, that's where you'd want to be. And there isn't a safer city to be on the, uh, the, third, the third Monday in April than in Boston, Massachusetts on a day like today. So salute to all the heroes, first responders, and all the people in Boston on that day. It's not a sad topic. It's sad that it happened, but it made me proud to be from here. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I didn't realize all the, the backstory with uh, all the activity on that day. And, um, yeah, I think Big Poppy had some things to say about that yeah. uh, that situation as well. I don't <laughs> use any expletives, but you know, it was a very short You know what's crazy comment. about that, Doug? Is it uh, on live TV, they didn't hit the delay button. So like, yes, it, got, I know. it went out to everybody and it was like, <laughs> you know, the whole city, everybody heard it. But um, and then it. they went, they went and they won the world series that year, you know, the whole, the whole, mm -hmm. all of New England behind yeah. the whole country behind them. It was, it was great. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. All right. All right. So next topic, Doug, what cool. do you got? All right. So my topic starts with the question, which is when did it be so, when, when did it start being cool to own a truck stop? Right. Um, and what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, truck stops are kind of the oasis of the plains. I certainly saw a lot of them this weekend on my drive across western Kansas and, and eastern Colorado. Um, but, you know, the 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 uh, uh, the truck stop. Two things are going on. Number one, British Petroleum is looking to acquire TCA Travel Centers of America. And just this weekend, um, the, uh, uh, it was officially passed that yes, they could continue on with the, the acquisition, uh, and Berkshire Hathaway, um, is looking to, uh, increase their ownership of pilot truck stops, right? I think they owned a small percentage and then, uh, most recently they, they took over, they own 80% of it now, but in uh, classic Berkshire Hathaway form, they brought in some of their big boys. So they've asked a few of the leadership, the CEO, CFO. Uh, of pilot to hit the bricks and they're bringing in some old school leadership to run the show. Uh, and everybody is looking for a taste of, of, uh, of ownership and positioning themselves uh, to basically, we refer to this, you know, a little bit of owning the rails, right? If you think about it, 
most of it, in my opinion, is a real estate play. And how do you distribute energy to the changing economy and how things are moving towards electrification? And um, and I think you're going to see a revamp of truck stops. I think you're going to see them nicer and nicer. It's not just going to be, you know, um, you know, a crappy shower in the corner and a bunch of semis lined up. But if you think about it, as uh, you know, even with a family of four taking a road trip, they need to stop and and, uh, and reduce their uh, their cars, their electric cars. They're going to want to stop. They're going to want to get some food, the whole nine yards. So I think the uh, truck stop, as we know it, is in an evolution. And Berkshire understands that. British Polo- uh, Brit- BP, British Petroleum, understands that as an opportunity to sell services and fuel. Uh, to uh, the uh, the folks across our highways and the evolving landscape of how trucks are operated. So um, I think it's awesome. I think you're going to see a lot of changes, not only in the, in the trucking industry, but those stations, the oasis on the plains across America, are really going to take an evolution for a variety of reasons uh, in the upcoming years. And it's interesting to see that big-time investors, big-time Fortune 500 companies are seeing that. They're making the investment, and uh, it should be pretty cool as this thing continues to develop. I, I, I couldn't articulate this. I was trying to come up with a way to articulate it before the show, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can do it on the fly a little bit better. I wonder if companies like Berkshire and these other large conglomerates, these holding companies, I wonder if they're trying to find a way to consolidate their transportation spend through fuel where they're going to be able to say to large trucking fleets, you know, purchase your fuel through our, our network of fuel suppliers because ultimately you're purchasing and consuming fuel that we're selling to you. And they're going to be reaping and recovering profitability through it. I wonder if they were, if they're able to say, you know, when you, when you or your, your trucking firms, you purchase through us, we can give you a discount um, by buying it through us, even if it's just you know pennies on the gallon, that that lowers their transportation costs. And transportation costs being such a large part of their cost of goods sold. I wonder if there's mm-hmm. some kind of play there. And I bet if I spend enough time looking at it, when you look at the strategic locations of some of these places, there has to be a play there for them to reduce cost of goods sold in the long run. And I bet it's significant, but I, I didn't have the time to really dig deep enough into it once I saw the topics today. But um, I'm sure that some dweeb at McKenzie, some dateless, humorless jackass at McKenzie probably did that math, and that had something to do with the decision. Um, mm-hmm. And then another piece of I wanted to bring up was, have you ever been to a Bucky's, Doug? Have I been to a Bucky's? Mm-hmm. No, but I've heard about their, what, primarily Oklahoma, Texas. Louisiana, Arkansas. You know, they go sort of, if God if God was going to go to a truck stop, God would go to a Bucky's, my friend. They are awesome. Mm-hmm. All, all truck yeah. stops should be like Bucky's. They are, they're just awesome. Well, they will be. In my estimation, you know, the Bucky's may be the model, but they're more and more going to morph into, um, something that you just described. So even gas stations now, quick trip, they're in Kansas and now they're popping over here in Colorado. You walk in and 
you know, hi, how may I help you? Please come see us again. Yeah. Guys are out picking up trash in the parking lot. I mean, it is amazing. Love Quick Trip. Yeah, we had those now, all in Minnesota. They were fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, all right. All right. Bring us home, my friend. What do you got? Yeah. So today, um, big announcement in the world of finance. And people were talking about this coming, but uh, the, the announcement of it and the size of it was shocking. Apple has a credit card. It's, it's more of a rewards card associated with purchases. So people had always said, is this more of a, of a store card than a credit card? Well, it's turning out to be more of a banking facility. The Apple company today announced a, a breakthrough in their credit card where it's now backed by JP Morgan. And this, or it's a Goldman Sachs. It might be Goldman Sachs. I'll have to double check this. But the, um, the card itself now has a savings account that can be associated with it. So if you use it with the savings account, there's no minimum to it. Your interest rate is 4.25%. So your yield on that is 4.25%. Now, my bank doesn't give me 4.25% on my deposits. And... I wish they would, but what's mm -hmm. basically being said to you by Apple is we'll give you access to all of our goods. We give you cash back on your purchases, pretty good amount too. I think they're at uh, 2% right now, cash back on purchases through, through the card that you can use mm -hmm. immediately. They give you that cash back every week. And if you put your money into our bank accounts, we're going to give you 4.25% interest rate. So to put that in perspective, let's say that you're a relatively high wage earner in today's society. You make $225,000, $250,000 a year, and you're having your, your, your checks put directly into a bank account through Apple. And you've got a debit card with this bank that they have, and you're purchasing with this card. You're going to get back somewhere in the neighborhood of $11,000 a year of interest. And that's mm -hmm. more or less just paid for... If you're a family of four, all of your brand new phones, a couple of pairs of, you know, new earpods, a few brand new MacBook Pros. Um, it's basically every year that's enough to buy all of your peripherals. But more importantly, you've just given working capital to Apple. Billions mm -hmm. and billions, much like how we all put give money to Starbucks in our Starbucks cards, billions of dollars of it that they've got to use for whatever they want because we're giving them all of our money up front. There's like $2 billion of, of money on, on Starbucks cards that we just give them ahead of time and use in dribs and drabs. Well, imagine the kind of money we're about to give Apple. That's a great story, but I thought to myself, what are other companies that could do something like this? Amazon. Mm, yeah, you nailed it. Imagine what happens when, I mean, Apple's all great and all, but imagine what happens when Amazon says, you guys really don't need that much from Apple, do you? But every single one of you buys stuff from us. So what if we say, we'll give you 4% too. Give mm. us your money. We're about to start building warehouses on the moon with it. I think banks should be a little afraid of this. Seriously. Mm. They should, I mean, th there should be another bank that should be knocking on Bezos' door saying, listen, I know we talked a lot of smack about you guys, but I got my hat in my hand and you tell me whose cars to start waxing the parking lot because we're ready to sign a deal. 
this changes everything, yeah. dude. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, the, the Apple is probably one of the most uh, iconic brands. The loyalty that people have yeah, to true. Apple is going to just, the, the, the trajectory of that is going to be uh, phenomenal. Amazon, you buy a lot of stuff through them. So just the sheer buying power will have an impact. So, But brand loyalty at Apple is uh, second to none, right? So I think it'll be interesting. Maybe Amazon and others will sit on the wings. You know, I mean, uh, Walmart could do something more. Walmart could. That's uh, another one. But I I thought to myself, I used to always think, like, people say Amazon's going to buy UPS. I'm like, come on, what bank's going to give them that money? We're going to give them that money. We're going to give them that money by by opening up these these accounts with them. And then they're just going to have enough money to buy whoever the hell they want or to fund their own. They'll just fund their own. I, th- I yeah. think this this could be really interesting to watch over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great topic. Good one to end on for this week's edition of GTTW, Global Trade This Week. It happens weekly, and we always appreciate our audience for listening. Uh, whether it's halftime or the four topics we come up with, we hope you enjoy it. And uh, we wouldn't be here or projecting our, our comments without Cap Logistics. So please visit caplogistics.com. They can take care of you on your uh, transportation logistics needs. So Pete, I think that's it, man. We can check this week off the box and uh, we'll see everybody next week. See you next week, pal. Thanks. Bye. All right. See you.